Hello everyone, you're listening to one of our special Half Pint episodes, exclusive extra content that we produce especially to say thank you to our supporters over on Patreon. So many listeners wrote in asking us to do something on this particular topic that we decided to make this Half Pint free for everyone, which is something we do every now and again anyway. In this Half Pint, we're coming to you from Luxembourg, where we sat down with an old university friend to talk about the recent and controversial visit of the Pope to Ireland on the 26th of August this year. If you'd like to support us and gain access to the full library of Half Pint episodes, you can head on over to www.patreon.com slash theirishpassport and become a subscriber today for less than a euro a month. Enjoy the episode. Young people of Ireland, I love you. John Anthony Murphy, five months. Thomas Murphy, three months. Elizabeth Murphy, four months. Nora Murphy, five months. The time for institutions to place their own interests above protecting our children is over. These predator priests were allowed to thrive in darkness for decades. The abuse and cover-up is now publicly disclosed for the people of Pennsylvania to read for themselves. The critical question now is whether elected representatives and church officials will actually listen. I'd write it for him if he likes. Here it is for him. I, Pope Francis, Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church, Head of State of the Vatican City State, affirm that this institution, the Vatican, the Roman Catholic Church, has implemented a deliberate and willful policy of covering up the crimes of clergy. We all have a story. This happened to all of us. I believe you before you open your mouth. I believe you. I believe every word you're about to tell me. I believe you. I believe you before you open your mouth. I believe you. I believe each and every one of you before you even open your mouth. I believe you, I believe you, I believe you, and we believe each other. It wasn't the abuse that was the hardest part. It wasn't the abuse, but it was the abuse and the not being believed, the abuse and the lies, the abuse and the cover-up, the abuse and the burying. Pedimos perdón por los abusos en Irlanda, abusos de poder, de conciencia, abusos sexuales por parte de miembros cualificados de la Iglesia. Hello, 
listeners, so today uh, we are not actually going according to uh, program scheduling, are we, Naomi? We promised you uh, an episode on Belfast. We're going off piece and <laughs> because something very important has happened and a lot of listeners have been asking us to talk about it. The Pope's visit. The, the Pope's visit, visit of Pope Francis to Ireland, which just happened yeah. last week. Yes, yeah, so Bergoglio himself made his way to the Emerald and to kind of give a perspective on it, we've got a special guest today who is our university friend, John, who's an Irish man living in Luxembourg and he travelled back all the way from Luxembourg to Ireland to see the Pope. So we invited him to come and have a chat with us and hear about what it was all like. Hello. Hello, hello, John. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, we'll also be hearing some interviews from our own friends and family about their perspective on the whole matter. And we'll be looking at the wider context of this visit and what it means for modern Ireland. Now, you may have guessed from the opening clip that we heard there that the visit inspired very mixed reactions. Mm. So obviously, statistically, Ireland is a very overwhelmingly Catholic country still. Mm -hmm. It has one of the highest participation rates in Europe, just after Portugal and Italy. And for lots of practicing Catholics, this was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to meet with and pray with the Pope, and it's something they hold very dear to their hearts. But at the same time, you know, this is an Ireland which has seen a huge backlash against church institutions mm -hmm. in the last few decades, and that was very much kind of the, a, a huge talking point of the visit. Sure, right. And since that last visit, which was in 1979, there have been uh, systematic abuses exposed in Catholic institutions on an enormous scale. Cases of sexual and physical abuse in schools and in children's homes, uh, forced labour of women and girls in Magdalene laundries, and the trafficking and selling of illegitimate babies, as well as the secret disposal of their bodies in unmarked mass graves. So absolutely huge stuff. All this is in a system in which the church, you know, wor was working hand in glove with the Irish state. And above all of this is the fact that the church was actively and possibly is still actively covering up these crimes and have still not really acknowledged responsibility for many of them. And that's a source of huge anger in the country. And it was really kind of brought simmering to the surface all at once during this visit. What you heard there at the beginning was the sound of Pope John Paul II during the last papal visit to Ireland in 1979. Very different Ireland. You also heard the sound of demonstrators who were reading out the names of children who died in the tomb mother and baby home. That was at a protest last week. Uh, you also heard a clip from the press conference of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report on child abuse in the Catholic Church, and that came out just before Pope Francis's visit and inevitably cast a pretty dark shadow on the whole trip. The other clips were from Stand for Truth. So that's a rally that drew, drew thousands in central Dublin to stand in solidarity with abuse survivors right as Pope Francis held mass in the Phoenix Park not far away. You heard the musician Hosier playing Take Me to Church and also Grace Dias performing Spoken Word as well as the director of Amnesty International Ireland, Colm O'Gorman, who is himself a survivor of abuse by a priest. Okay, so let's start by getting a feel for what the atmosphere was like at the Papal Mass itself. Yeah, let's do that. And I, I want to say, like, I feel like the three of us kind of represent a kind of a spectrum of engagement mm -hmm. with the Pope's visit. Like, John obviously is interested. He went back and we'll, we'll hear why um, in a minute. I kind of think my reaction is a bit of the mess kind of scale mm -hmm. and Tim you're pretty much openly critical and opposed to the visit which we'll, we'll hear more of in, in a while so John first of all why did you want to go back and see Pope Francis talk what was important about it for you yeah so um my dad would be very quite religious mm -hmm. yeah and he goes to mass by himself um still and I knew that he would be interested in going mm -hmm. So I heard that the tickets were going were going offer, and I called him up quickly and asked him if he'd be interested in going, and he said he would. Yeah. So uh, I said, why not? 
you know, mm-hmm. go come back and go with him. And like, what what were you kind of expecting from it? Like, you you were interested to see what Pope Francis had to say. Yeah, I mean, I um, I wouldn't call myself religious, but I I do have some belief somehow. He is a he's a new pope. He's someone who seemed to be seems to be more kind of aware of um, problems in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of a reforming pope, isn't he? Like he's yeah. made a lot of changes since coming in. So yeah, that was his I guess his his kind of platform, especially yeah. after after he was um, chosen. So can you tell us what it was like? You got on a plane in Luxembourg, came back to Ireland. What was the atmosphere like? Yeah, it was um, it was kind of strange to be honest. I I expected I think more of a kind of a celebratory kind of excited atmosphere, mm-hmm. mm. but it seemed it was kind of I think maybe the, maybe it's kind of the weather was kind of bad, and it just was kind of a bit dark I thought um, and that was only the day before on the day I think about 1pm we were dropped off and then like walked the rest of the way to the first the Villafi and then along the Keys to the Phoenix Park okay so this okay. was like for the Papal Mass so like he did a couple of different things mm-hmm. he spoke in Knock uh, there was the World Meeting of Families as well and then the sort of the the cherry on the cake of the whole visit was a big mass in the Phoenix Park. The which, Phoenix Park, yeah, which is one of the, the biggest city parks really um, in an urban space in Europe. I think, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a huge, huge park. And there's a massive cross right in the middle of it, which was erected for the last papal visit when Pope John Paul II came and gave mass in just the same place. So it was right. kind of... And it was supposed to be temporary, temporal. actually. It was, oh, was it? Oh, right. okay. okay. Mm-hmm. The kind of chimes with the last visit. So yeah, Pope Francis went back and held this mass. So it was, what was it like, John? Um, so we walked... There were people kind of standing like along the keys, kind of just watching, kind of. Maybe it was myself, but I, I just felt a kind of a ambivalence maybe about people it. People were judging you maybe for going. Yeah, maybe, yeah. It's, it was a weird feeling, yeah. Because, That's um, interesting. Like I said, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be extremely religious but there was kind of a disapproval maybe okay that's so interesting that's so interesting mm. we got to the Phoenix Park and as we the closer we got kind of more and more people were obviously heading there as well yeah it was never completely crowded I'd say the streets were never completely packed but actually one thing I noticed was there was so many people from clearly from other countries so I remember there was a big um I think Costa Rican kind of group with like oh, flags really? and you know um Right. So obviously people, I guess this is the world family meetings was... Um, yeah, so right. people came okay. from all over, yeah, yeah, yeah. There were people kind of singing at certain points and, you know, the, the, once we got in, it was, it did seem more, I guess people felt more kind of free to... Okay, to you know, more relaxed. Yeah. So you feel like they were going there sort of huddled down and yeah. not... Not like, holding themselves tall. Yeah, like I said, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be extremely religious, but there was kind of a disapproval maybe. Okay. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. Mm. But then once you got into the crowds in the Phoenix Park, people were more open and just like Mm. being happy that Pope Francis was there. Okay, well, I was interested, I was watching the coverage on TV of uh, when uh, the Pope arrived and I was trying to gauge the feeling in the city of the people who were like watching. It was hard to tell really because it was going very fast. You couldn't tell when people were shouting abuse at him or whether they were you know, <laughs> calling out, uh, saying hello to him. Um, but there were very few people in the streets mm. and it did have that feeling of a little bit, you know, like it wasn't as jubilant yeah. as it had been geared up to be. I wonder, is, is that was that what it actually felt like on the ground? Yeah, definitely. I think people were quite quiet as well and people weren't really... So I remember seeing one family who were all like really kind of hyped up for it, but like that was, they kind of stood out, you know. Mm -hmm. I think the mass started, was to start at 3 p.m. It was this huge 
open grassy area mm-hmm. which was divided into kind of squares they weren't really checking people's tickets so much and, and we heard that people were going forward mm. closer oh, right. to so they yeah. were kind of clustering in yeah closer. as close as possible yeah. so in, in our allotted square we actually it was quite empty actually I, and I were took, people like cheering uh, there was excitement let's yeah. say and the actual mass it was all translated wasn't it by yeah so actually it was mostly in I think it was mostly in Spanish but it was clear that his English I guess he, he doesn't really have much English he really doesn't speak very much English yeah. at all he um, re- you very very rarely hear him speak it and when you do speak it it's obvious yeah. like an yeah. unfamiliar language to him exactly yeah he, like day to day or week to week in Rome he always gives the mass in Italian because you know he's the bishop of Rome he's like the, you know he has a, a pastoral function there so he speaks in Italian I think most of his days yeah. but his his native language is Spanish but he was I think at about 3 o'clock he was introduced by I believe uh, Archbishop Dermot Martin he was basically introducing the Pope and he started by saying that in 1979 I think one and a half million people were in this park Mm. welcoming um, Pope John Paul II and that Pope Francis now finds himself in a very different Ireland. That's and interesting. that the faith is a lot weaker maybe now. There are fewer people going to Mass that I think he might have referred to various abuses. And he asked like how how could Pope Francis address the, uh, these issues, which I, I was kind of surprised about. I had heard that these, these things wouldn't be addressed at all. Yeah, they're quite forthright about yeah. it. Yeah. Right. This is a really interesting thing. So he was saying that out to the crowd. So uh, at the last papal visit, there was uh, uh, the figures here in front of me. There are 1.25 million people at that same mass in that same space. But that's a third of the po- of the view of the population mm. back then. It was enormous. Enormous. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 2.5 million people took part in other events that w- with that included. Um, but this papal mass only had a figure that really made the media headlines was 130,000, and that figure came from Dr. Pa- Patrick Plunkett. He was the medical director at the Phoenix Park event, and yeah. that went viral very quickly, that there was only 130,000. Yeah. Um, Father McNeese, who was one of the main organizers, he claimed 200,000, and that was based on how much communion bread he used. Oh. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, a know, good one. Yeah, yeah, why not? And, That's uh, a good solid way of estimating. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, RTE, that's the state broadcaster, they said somewhere between 150 and 300,000, and the Vatican said 300,000. So okay, there isn't an official estimate. Th- no and official the key estimate. thing is that between 500,000 and 600,000 were expected. Mm. Right. So it was a vastly, vastly smaller number that actually turned out, and that explains the empty seats yeah, that there you was, saw there around you, John. Yeah, huge amounts of empty space. I watched the coverage that day, but it was this huge elephant in the room. There was just acres and acres and acres mm. of green space. I, guess I thought yeah. it hadn't started yet when I was watching it, and it was in full, full swing. It was I in get, full flow, I guess yeah. there were cameras from the helicopters. Yeah, 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 yeah. the helicopters you heard over yeah. above were, were filming. Probably more apparent from like watching t- on TV. Oh, it was it was shocking, um, yeah. but it was even it was even worse because the commentators. Every time we saw a shot of this, um, would kind of mention, isn't it wonderful that so many people showed mm. up? You know? Oh, so like they weren't like dynamically adjusting to the reality yeah. in front oh, exactly. of them. They were kind of still coming with their pre-prepared assumptions about what it would be like and not actually adjusting. Oh my with God, that must empty be a really strange TV. dissonance. Like, um, what are you talking about? So there was some aerial pictures there a moment ago, very dramatic uh, shots. You could see all the buses lined up just outside the uh, the Phoenix Park uh, that have brought people here. And there you can see what we believe. We're told by the organisers that in excess of 500,000 tickets were issued. Uh, it's, uh, who, who will say whether 500,000 people turn up? There's various issues, the transport uh, complications. But uh, one person who will be here is Pope Francis, and you see him there now arriving in his Pope mobile. Uh, 
Well, the mass here in the Phoenix Park has ended and the tens of thousands of people who attended are now trying to leave the Phoenix Park. I actually the numbers of people who brought small children with them. I was looking at them thinking, would I have brought my children when they were small? And I don't think I would. Well, would even with the weather and everything, people did manage to last the day out, which I think... Well, I think the police, the Irish police, declined to give any figure, which okay. they often... I mean, that's fairly common for, for police services to do because often crowd estimates become a political matter quite quickly mm -hmm. and they hate getting put in the position of arbiters of this stuff. Looking back, they weren't actually really checking the like tickets. They right. weren't like, you know, marking them off when people sure. were entering. They just kind of like looked and kind of sure. waved you on. So, yeah. um, And you know, like, I mean, a lot of people were commenting on social media that who cares how many people showed up and why are people focusing on this um, so much? Yeah. But it is important. This yeah, is significant. Is. If those estimates are true of between something between 100 and 200,000 similar figures attended a gardening show um, right. this mm. year in the Phoenix Park. Um, to put that in perspective. To put it in perspective, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe, I mean, like you say, it was drizzling, there was poor weather. There was a lot of worry about how older people were going to be able to manage mm. the very long walk that was necessary to get into the Phoenix Park. Yeah, actually a taxi driver told me um, a lot of coaches from the countryside, from the West, had decided against coming on the day because they would have to stop so far away from the Phoenix Park. Right. It was a bit disorganized, yeah, right. mm. actually, in hindsight. Like you said, it like as if they were expecting way more people. Um, as well as the debate about abuse and, you know, the, the political context that Francis was coming into, there was a lot of resentment at the um, measures that were taken by the, you know, the authorities in Ireland to prepare for this visit. So public transport was massively curtailed. Movement in the city was hugely curtailed. Um, so, you know, people, people's, you know, ordinary lives were very much affected by this, whether they were interested in it or not. And that caused a lot of resentment because it was like, why do we do this for this person? This, does, this doesn't happen in any other situation. So, Tim, you were actually on BBC Five Live, the radio show, the morning of the mass, and you denounced the Pope visit. And you said, <laughs> how dare he set foot in the country? Why did you feel like that? Indeed, I, I did say that. I said I was surprised that he had the audacity uh, yeah. to set foot uh, in the country. I, I mean, I, I would welcome him to come to the country if he's coming to directly address uh, the, the crimes that the Catholic Church has committed and that have been uh, exposed over the last uh, 20, 30 years. But he wasn't doing that, right? Uh, instead, he was coming to, to a world meeting of families and talking about families. And I found that particularly, uh, particularly offensive, actually, uh, considering uh, the families that were destroyed by the actions uh, of his church. Uh, the, problem, the main problem that uh, a lot of people have at the moment is that, you know, bishops and priests and the Pope himself are very willing and very ready to say that they're saddened. They're, they're very ready to say that they're appalled and they're saddened and to ask for forgiveness, which is something that he did mm -hmm. uh, during this visit. They're not willing to claim responsibility uh, in a legal way in particular. If rather than saying, um, please give me forgiveness, he said the Vatican apologizes, he would, I believe, become legally liable and therefore um, uh, accountable. Uh, for, you know, this is a lot of people's lives uh, that were ruined. And to put that in perspective, at the moment, 18 of the religious orders that we know of in Ireland who were involved in abuse, um, 18 of them refuse 
to pay full compensation to their victims at the moment. And they can do that, um, apparently. Um, they, they seem to act entirely above the law. And the Pope himself seems to be acting entirely above the law in Ireland. And a lot of people are holding up signs saying, jail the Pope, just arrest him. Wow. Because he is responsible for crimes here. And he, he needs to go into prison and be questioned about it. I guess that shows the depth of feeling about it. John, when he gave the Mass itself, was the point, because he asked for forgiveness, didn't he? Was that like obvious when he said that or was that not the main focal point because obviously that was the quote everybody picked up on actually it was um the first part of his um his mass probably went on for about 10 minutes of him asking for forgiveness for various abuses yeah and he went into like quite detail i think he mentioned like children who were abused like women who had been forced to work and mm-hmm. uh babies who had been sold into adoption and mm-hmm. um i was surprised i thought it was going to be glossed over kind of that wasn't the case at all and it was mm-hmm. it was quite emotional i thought people were applauding after each apology and or point really um, yeah not everyone mind you but um mm-hmm. I, think uh, people, I think people appreciate it even you know even yeah. right. well, of course the faithful i mean like this happened to above all to people who had faith you know people mm-hmm. who were part of the church uh the, the wording is interesting um i think we might have heard it in that clip earlier uh it was asking forgiveness for some people in this church who have committed abuse okay. and therefore really kind of offloading the blame to some people that are, like apparently he has nothing to do with um not asking forgiveness for his role in the cover-up I mean, that wasn't addressed at all. I think I think a question as well was whether this was asking... Who was he asking forgiveness of? Because mm-hmm. it was part of the Mass. Is he asking God to forgive him in the way that you do? You know, mm-hmm. in the way that you, you, you generally do? Or was this... Was this really an apology to the victims or to the Irish people or anything like that? Yeah. Or was it more addressed like he was talking to God? But also actually it was, um, that part was in Spanish. And there were, at, for most of the Mass there was um, on the screens like subtitles in English of like what he was saying. But I don't think for that part it was translated. Ah. Because huh. I, remember, I remember my dad asking me if I understood language he was speaking i think he went off the cuff i think that's probably why okay i think he ah, okay. like he said he had met with abuse survivors the previous day and it was that morning I think. after yeah. or yes earlier yeah. and then he was kind of responding to that directly okay. so perhaps they didn't have the subtitle with their subtitles ready um oh, okay so naomi yeah like you would have been looking at this through journalist eyes and you covered the the pope's election uh, like when he came to the papacy so like you know, how how close did you get to him back then? So I was in the square when Pope Francis emerged um, for the first time, and his identity was revealed as the new Pope. So as soon as the white smoke went up, people began to rush towards the square from all over Rome to discover who this new Pope was going to be, and the whole road leading up to it was filled with people. Um, and we were all standing there, and then uh, Bergoglio himself appeared at the balcony, and he said "Buonasera," which is a really informal way of addressing people and it was just instantly uh charismatic and everybody warmed to him he's a very informal pope Mm. and it was setting a tone for um rejecting the opulence of the church uh going back to fundamentals uh and humility and and he he began to enact that immediately so he refused to move into the apostolic palace and to this day he lives in a kind of a boarding house adjacent you know on the on the vatican grounds he doesn't actually live in a palace as as is traditional it's really important to note the immediate context before he arrived in ireland of course the pennsylvania report came out the pennsylvania grand jury in massive detail like just listed all of these crimes that had taken place um which they'd gathered with a huge investigation over many years, getting together all these victims. Um, um, of of uh, sexual abuse of in, in the church. clerical sex abuse in the church. And it, it, it kind of detailed all of this, not, not only 
horrific abuse, but also the moving around of priests, of abusers, mm -hmm. rather than, you know, kicking them out, a kind of, you know, a, a, a cover-up. They called it a cover-up. And so that, that was a huge bombshell, and that hit just in the in the build-up to it and that was the cloud under which Francis arrived in Ireland and if the, none of that had happened Francis would have been asked a lot of questions by Irish abuse survivors but what happened in because of that build-up is the entire world media descended in Ireland to the press conferences to get answers from the Catholic Church about abuses globally so it made it much much more focused on that, on right. this whole build-up. Um, so at the same time as the Papal Mass was being held, there were protests uh, being held around the country, mm. um, most notably the Stand for Truth protest, which we'll get on to yeah. uh, in a minute. Uh, one of the more um, surprising ones, I think, uh, was the, the mass attendance of people in Tume in County Galway. Now, our listeners might remember that we talked about this uh, in a previous episode on the Catholic Church. We interviewed uh, a woman called Catherine Corliss, uh, she's a historian, and she uncovered, essentially, that uh, a convent of nuns uh, who used to run a mother and baby home in the town had illegally buried up to 796 um, un uncertified babies and children in a disused septic tank. And that made headlines all around the world. We, we had a very emotional interview with her, um, which you can go back to and listen to if you like. Now, I mean, interestingly, that interview that we did with Catherine Corliss, yeah. that was a kind of turning point for me in my attitudes uh, to all of this. Really? We've known about these uh, abuses and scandals since we were about eight, year, eight years old, right? I can't remember a time when priests priests didn't have the association of abuse right. for me. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just all pervasive growing up. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and I always kind of felt that the church's attitude was, wait it out, wait until it blows over, and then maybe things will get better. So what surprised me was, rather than um, this kind of going away, was that it had deepened. It's like, it, it felt like when I listened to Catherine Coyle's, it's only hitting us now, I think as a nation, that we've yeah. been in a kind of shock for 20 years about yeah. this, and that it's only sinking in the enormity yeah. of this. Now, one thing that she said in that interview, um, she described going to the nuns and asking where the, the babies were. And the asking nun, for the files. Asking yeah. for the files. And the nun told her, the, the grandparents probably came, took the babies and buried them in their gardens. Now, the big question was, where are they buried? So nobody seemed to know. Um, the Bonsecour sisters again told me that perhaps the families uh, of the, the mothers who had the babies, perhaps perhaps the babies' grandparents brought them home to their own uh, graveyards and buried them in, the, in their own plots. Now, without even checking, first of all, I knew that wasn't, well, that, that, that wasn't an option because um, when those mothers were sent into the mother and baby home in the first place when they were pregnant outside marriage, it was a crime nearly. It was frowned upon by the church. The women were ostracized. And it was an awful shame on the family. That's how they felt. Because um, it goes back to the church. They ostracized the women. They condemned them. They said they were sinners. And a lot of the parish priests wouldn't allow the women to stay in the village, even when they had their baby and tried to come back home. They were sent off again. So they, they, most of the mothers went on to England to work. Uh, they were more or less banished from their home place. So I knew bringing, uh, and bringing an illegitimate baby back home to the village to bury it wasn't, wouldn't have been an option with families. And it was that. It, it really struck a chord because it was something I recognised, that attitude. I recognised that attitude. The fobbing off. The, well, the whole attitude um, from the church and from, from institutions as a child. Like, that's mm. how they used to treat us. Mm. Treating the general public with 
contempt, but also that kind of smugness, you know, like this idea that we are above the law and that you don't deserve answers from us. We can do whatever we want. I recognized it, but it was something I thought had gone away. And when I, to imagine that happening in 2014, there was just this very urgent feeling of, oh no, 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 this is over. Like this, this isn't happening anymore. I felt like I need to, I need to be part of something that lets the church know that they're not doing this anymore. Like this is, this is from a different time. This is not acceptable anymore. And it made me kind of radicalized in a a way that I wasn't before. That's interesting. So the the Pope went uh, to Knock, which is a a holy place in Ireland where the, you know, people have uh, seen apparitions of the Virgin Mary. To coincide with that, there were protests or there was a demonstration in Tomb, which isn't that far away from Knock. No, it's in the same diocese. It's in the same diocese. So... Tim, your mum went along. Do you want to tell us about that? She did. Um, Maybe it's best to hear from her herself. Well, I really actually didn't know about it until midday that day, but I had been watching the Pope that morning in Knock, and I was just very upset. I wouldn't like to say enraged, but very upset uh, that he didn't even mention the the tomb babies. So uh, I mentioned it to someone, and they said it was... Uh, there was a vigil in, in Tomb that day and I had arrangements, I had prior arrangements, I cancelled them. Uh, I'm not making a saint of myself, I just knew I needed to do something to show solidarity with those babies. And when I arrived in Tomb, the first two people I saw were my brother and his wife from Meath. And I thought, oh my God, if they're here, then it's really right to be here. They have travelled from Meath. I only came in the road, really. They, I asked them, I said, why are you here? And they said, we're here for the babies, the two of them together. We're here for the babies and we're here for Catherine Corliss. And all I had to do was look around at the crowds of people. I expected maybe 50, 100, 200, the very most, because it wasn't advertised. People didn't know about it. So when I saw the crowds of people and the atmosphere was, it was one of... <laughs> Pain. That's the best way I can describe it. It was pain. Real pain on everybody's face. It was silent. People were just standing there. The silence and the sadness and tears just rolling down people's faces. And by the way, there were men and women of all ages all along the route were Catholic uh, primary schools, Catholic secondary schools, the Mercy Nun schools, the Presentation, the Christian Brothers, all along the route, all the schools in Tomb seemingly are all on the same road. And the, of course, they have railings along. So all those railings, there were toys, uh, baby shoes, everything to do with babies, teddies, all attached to the railings, which was sombre and very, very sobering to walk along there and look at that. Even if you weren't a survivor, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a survivor. Just to describe what was inside, there was like a circle in the middle of the area. And in the middle of that circle was a bowl, which a local potter had made with, uh, it was the bodies of babies, the forms of little babies, 796 of them. And it was beautiful. And inside in that bowl was the name of each child and a little card. And those cards were distributed amongst the crowd. And the baby I got was Mary Bridget Giblin, aged three months. All of that set an atmosphere that was, 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 was the right atmosphere for what was happening. Because we all knew when you entered this place, the hair stood on your head because you knew something awful had happened. But that's the same feeling I got in Tume last Sunday, as I had when I went into Auschwitz. 
a crime, a terrible crime had been committed here. Crime after crime after crime after, and nobody, nobody said stop. And unfortunately, nobody is still saying it's wrong, really. I mean, oh yes, we're all saying it's wrong, but nobody who matters. I mean, the, the Pope, the leader of our church, didn't know about it. He said he didn't know about it. That make, makes me feel very angry and sad. And outside of being having left the church, as uh, I was a, a practicing Catholic up to a few years ago, uh, but outside of that, that so many people would still support this man with flying flags and running up to Dublin in cars and 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 ignoring this. They know it happens, but ignoring it. But I suppose it's very hard to get people to step up to the mark. But so many people did on Sunday. And that must have been wonderful for the survivors and for Catherine Corliss, who has worked so tirelessly to try and get people to realise and understand the enormity of what has happened in June. It's a new Ireland. People are not accepting this anymore. We have a young generation who came back here and who are here and who voted in their hordes for the two last referendums that the church both went against in such a, 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 a dominating way. That didn't work for them. And this is not going to work for them. And now the people are standing up. Tim, that was very powerful, especially, you know, how your mum said she was a practicing Catholic until a few years ago. Mm. I, I feel, you know, that's an experience that many people in Ireland will share. Yeah, it's, um, and I suppose she's representative of a movement in an older generation as well. And so was that March, which I thought yeah. was really interesting. If you look at the footage from that vigil in June, it's really, it's mostly older people. So um, this, this backlash against the church, it has to be remembered. It's often kind of like assumed to be a young people's thing. Mm. But this includes a lot of people who experienced abuses of the church firsthand yeah. and that generation the generation who are in the 50s and 60s right now you know in lots of ways they live through the worst of it so yeah. they're turning um, their back on the church in their masses as well i think that's one of the bigger problems and um, that the church is facing in ireland they're not just facing one generation they're facing two or three generations at a time all turning against them which is very significant so like john how would you um put that tomb vigil and uh, that experience in comparison to the papal mass that was happening at the same time yeah i mean to be honest, I could have seen myself at, at, at both events, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think someone who went to the papal mass, I don't think it means that they don't acknowledge and um, abhor the abuses that went on for so long. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, I think people, it's very complicated. It's, 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 yeah. not, um, it's, it's not mutually exclusive. Um, right. People can be faithful, but also horrified at a lot of the church's acts, you know? Yeah. What I think is very interesting is that it's very clear to me from the tone of these protests that people in Ireland have very much turned against the church as an institution, uh -huh. but not away from faith. Right. So they're very spiritual protests. People um, pray, uh, hold vigils. Um, you know, these are very heartfelt protests and it isn't a rejection of faith at all. It's right. a rejection of this specific institution, specific to a, a historical moment in time. We'll get on to what the what these protesters actually want to happen in a minute. But first, let's listen to my sister. So she was at another protest, which was in Dublin. Great. It just so happened all of my uh, three siblings were there all together. Um, so there was a very strong O'Leary turnout at this Stand for Truth event. And Molly chatted to me about what it was like. And how did you feel about the Pope coming? Um, 
At, at the beginning, I was kind of indifferent. And then when I started to think about it a bit more, I began to feel a little bit apprehensive about it just because of the aforementioned abuses and stuff like that. And just thinking about the whole history um, with Ireland and talking to people about it and their experience of it. Can you just describe your experience on the day? Like what, what scene did you encounter there? When I first turned up, uh, one of the first performers was getting everybody to sing um, Truth, Justice and Love and everyone had these signs saying Truth, Justice and Love. It felt quite Christian and we felt a little um, alienated because of that. Um, like there was another element of it as well where there was a kind of prayer done by the Magdalene Laundries slash meditation where everybody was asked to kind of close their eyes and breathe and imagine light in their hearts and imagine spreading love out into the space, like spreading a positive energy into the space, um, which uh, which felt very uh, prayer-like, you know, um, and combined with the singing, it all felt a bit like a ceremony. But at the same time, that felt appropriate sometimes because it was like, it was an acknowledgement of pain, you know, and... Um, and so it had that same sort of reverence and solemnity that you get um with a with a ceremony you know and um and i i really i was very quite i was quite moved really um especially by the spoken word uh performer about recovering from trauma for ireland and for for all the individuals in ireland as well they also sang imagine by john lennon and i think that was the kind of feeling it was like we want to make a better Ireland, which is based on real love. You know, people spoke about how Pope had said when he came, you know, young people of Ireland, I love you, you know, but that that people don't believe him now. But there is love was very, very much the message that we should go into the future with, you know. Um, and so even if that wasn't true then, let's try and make it true now in a different way. That felt like the overriding message for me anyway. I saw people um, online connecting the the turnout there and the sort of the movement to what happened with repeal, like seeing it as a kind of a continuation of that activism. Mm. Do you think, did you get that sense or did you feel like this was a different thing? It, to be honest, it felt different to me. Um there was a different feeling in the crowd. It was a lot less um, jubilant and it was a lot more mixed age groups. Like with the repeal thing, I definitely noticed that it was dominated by people around my own age mostly. Um, but with this, it was all ages, you know, and actually quite a lot of people over 60 were there, um, which is unusual, I think, for, I don't know, for that kind of activism, maybe. I'm not sure. I don't really know. But um so it felt different the mood was different it was less it was less um demanding as well and and more um it was more solemn really that's a really interesting um a few things that molly brought up there actually um firstly the kind of almost uh religious aspect to the protests themselves yeah and secondly connecting this to the general kind of snowball of political activism that has been put in motion by uh the repeal vote and by the equal marriage vote in the last, what, two or three years? Yeah, certainly just from my own observation, my social circles have become massively more politically active mm -hmm. in the last two years. Like, my immediate family wouldn't 
ordinarily be canvassing and knocking on doors in the run-up to elections, but they were all out for repeal. I mm-hmm. mean, every single one of them. And again, going to this thing, and it seems that, well, to me, it was a kind of a sign that the activism and the participation, um, the active participation of repeal isn't going away. Right. At least not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that everybody, there was a protest and everybody came. Mm-hmm. They all they all showed, but obviously that's just a you know a very partial view. Something else that she mentioned were the ages of the people there, which we mentioned um, in relation to, to Tume as well. When you put that in, in the context of the last two referendums, um, both of those referendums were very strongly opposed by the Catholic Church on equal marriage and on uh, abortion access, and both of them succeeded with two more or less two thirds uh, margins of the popula- of the voting population. Yeah. Now that that has to include more than this young mobilized generation. Yeah, no, it had to. Yeah, right. in order to pass by pass that by that margin. So that means that I mean this whole time the older people have been more silently engaged and in this yeah. kind of third big event in these last few years, they finally kind of got to be seen and yeah. got their voice heard. They were they were yeah, very prominent into the forefront of this. So it, could you say that this has moved from a kind of a youth reaction, a youth revolution to a national cultural revolution of sorts? Possibly. Mm. We'll have to see what happens next, but I do feel like it's a turning point. I mean, I just feel like Francis didn't know what he was stepping into in Ireland. For sure. You can kind of tell if you listen to how he was speaking in his words. It's to be expected. He's kind of like a monarch. You know, he kind of has a court. Mm -hmm. He has a whole coterie of people surrounding him. And he very much tries to get out of that bubble. That's like one of the things that defines his papacy. But his day-to-day is rather cosseted by people who are in the in-group of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think he knew what he was in for when he came to Ireland. But in fairness, Archbishop Martin did acknowledge that Ireland was a completely different country yeah. from, mm-hmm. from then. You know, Right. I d- I just feel like they should have done something different then. Like, they should have had a, a different approach. It, they, the way that the trip was set up was as, as though nothing had changed. Was it still important for a chunk of the Irish society who feel excluded now, who feel a bit marginalised? They feel that they're a new minority. They're right. getting the experience of being a minority for the first time. And, for, and if there's yeah. disapproval about them going to see the Pope... It brings them back, like there's a historical memory of when Catholicism was very much institutionally discriminated against Mm -hmm. in Ireland. And there's sort of of a reflex ability to deal with that. It's almost a comfortable position to be in, you know, to be an embattled minority. So I don't think that's going to go anywhere. I think that that is, if anything, you know, a, a really good setup for them to kind of fight back. That's what I think, in terms of the oh, yeah. culture that they're coming from. The do they need comfort? Do they need succor at the moment um, from, from the Vatican? They, they, they must be feeling quite embattled and disappointed. Absolutely. I mean, if you, I mean, there's those two referendums, as we've mentioned. In addition, you know, if you look at the two last censuses in Ireland, the, 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 there was a stark decline in the number of self-described Catholics. It went from 84% in 2011 to 78% just five years later. Mm -hmm. So that's a massive decline. And I expect when the 2021 comes out, it'll show another drop again. Mm. And then as well as that, like there's an aspect to Irish Catholicism where it obviously played a hugely important social role in providing the forum for where everybody had community events, essentially. And and also providing much of our healthcare and education for very many, many, many many decades and even to today. Um, But even though that was the case, people's 
individual beliefs were often at variance from doctrine right. and that's becoming more and more obvious like for example there was a there was a, a survey by the the Sunday Independent and it showed a really large majority in favor of uh, priests being able to marry and also women priests mm-hmm. which are not the beliefs of the Catholic Church you know so seems like a lot of Catholics who are Catholics believe something which is different from the official end of the church. So, which officially makes them Protestants, but we won't, uh, <laughs> we won't get into that. No, no but um, I think in the week before the Pope's visit, Mary McAleese was... Mary McAleese, former president of Ireland? Yeah. Yes, sorry. She um, had been, I think last year she was banned from... Um, she was supposed to uh, speak at events in the Vatican, and she was banned from it. I think it had to do with her views about... She believes that um, there should be female priests, and yeah. that uh, priests uh, should be allowed to marry... She studied canon law. She's yeah. very knowledgeable about it and involved in the Catholic tradition. But she's become a kind of a famous dissenter yeah. since she stopped being president and she openly, you know, criticizes right. the church and the hierarchy. And a lot of people, I think, take issue with her, her position. Mm. Um, so she would be a famous example of someone who is re- respecting her faith, yeah. but yeah. dissenting within but dissenting, the faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we all know people like that, don't we? I mean, we all oh, know. For sure. Like, I don't think I would know one Catholic who wouldn't say that actually that oh. that they that they I don't do. disagree. <laughs> oh yeah yeah i mean yeah the arch traditionalist yeah. okay yeah. i think she has a very pragmatic angle like her view is she sees like the church is the church is dying in ireland yeah you know fewer and fewer people are going to to mass even believe in in god so few priests now Mm. Um, and she believes that at least like the Catholic Church in Ireland taking or around the world yeah. mm. taking um, some modern step steps to modernize itself like such it's as, necessary yeah. to, yeah. to like, for its survival emergency triage yeah. right mm. interesting you bring up um, uh, Mary McAleese yeah. and the way that I suppose what, what you're saying is that she's trying to save the church in a way by, she, yeah. she thinks so yeah by pointing yeah. out their errors and when you when you put that in context then of the president that preceded her just before her was Mary Robinson yeah. uh, a former president and when she was president the church had so much unquestioned power still that they were denouncing her from the altar when she was on the campaign trail and they could have you know well they felt like they could have stopped her being voted in so that's a huge change because she had advocated against the uh, 1983 she was, yes. and, yeah. and contraception campaigner for contraception availability which seems like a no-brainer now but mm. um yeah it was controversial in its day and i think it's important to remember that history that we're coming out of like very much is within living memory um that ireland was an institutionally enormously conservative place mm. i mean it's within my lifetime that we have legal divorce it's within my lifetime that homosexuality homosexual acts mm. were illegal um and when I was born, say at that time, the power that the church had in day to day, the day to day life of many people is something that's really quite dis- difficult to grasp. I think mm-hmm. for someone who wasn't there, or, you know. And I think I think people at the time didn't think it could ever be challenged. No, they just that's kind it. of accepted. It felt insurmountable. And then yeah. It, yeah. it just has transformed all the like it's just gone so so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of Catholics will will wonder. Well, what more can the Pope do? Right, I mean, how is he going to make peace with He's apologized. The last Pope apologized. You know, there's been letters. There's been atonement. There's been meeting with survivors. There's been, you know, this and that. But this, this scandal has just been rolling for 20, 30 even years. Mm-hmm. And it just does not go away. What does the church need to do to get past it? And what do the protesters actually want from them? 
Okay, so like the first thing that they want, and we heard it there in Kyle McGorman's cl uh, clip, is acknowledgement of the cover-up. This is a huge thing, and this is something that has never happened. Acknowledging that the Vatican, as an institution, systematically directed cover-ups to try and get away with their crimes. And for a lot of people, this is the worst part of the whole thing. And of course, another another issue is the opening up of files. So uh, as we as we w became familiar with, with Catherine Corliss's investigations, you, you hit a brick wall when you try and get information from, from the church and also the state, to be fair, in mm -hmm. Ireland from this certain period. So like a lot of people who were adopted, who think they, their origin may have been a mother and baby home, they're, they're trying to trace their mothers mm -hmm. and they cannot because the files are gone and there is just no engagement with that so people want the, the files to be opened right indeed and, and another thing is like the giving over of certain clergy uh, for prosecution um, you know I think there was uh, one case in the mother and baby homes where a nun um, who was alive during the times decided to say to the police no comment like she was speaking to journalists and she was led away with that you know that nun really should be taken in for questioning yeah. a lot of people feel like a lot of the everyone who was around at this time, this, these places should be treated like a crime scene and that people need to be taken in and everything needs to be brought up. And then I suppose finally uh, we could bring up reparations, which uh, we've mentioned already. You know, a lot of people are living uh, lives that have been destroyed by the Catholic Church. A lot of people, for instance, are just trying to find out, uh, you know, where their mother is buried or who their mother was. Yeah. Or, or, for instance, in the tomb situation, just to have their brothers and sisters disinterred and given a, a decent burial. Yeah. Uh, things like that. Now, interestingly, the, the Taoiseach, um, uh, Leo Varadkar, he made, you know, quite a speech, a speech that has been quite notable. Yeah. Um, in front of the Pope, as the Pope sat beside him in Dublin Castle. Maybe let's have a listen to that. Let's have a listen. At times in the past, we have failed, and there are dark aspects of the Catholic Church's history. Magdalen laundries, mother and baby homes, industrial schools, illegal adoptions, and clerical child abuse are stains on our state, our society, and also the Church. People kept in dark corners, behind closed doors, cries for help that went unheard. And these wounds are still open, and there is much to be done to bring about justice and truth and healing for the victims and survivors. So Radker did two things there. He acknowledged the enormous role that the church had played in Ireland for very for a very long time, and he was also very respectful for the Pope. He referred to him as Holy Father throughout. But then he didn't pull his punches in talking about what the church needed to do and the darker side of the church's history either. Mm -hmm. In the context of how politicians have, have historically uh, spoken to the Catholic Church, it is a, a marked um, move away from yeah. the normal kind of reverential, deferential tone. And it was a difficult balance that Varadkar had to... Had yeah, to he did it quite well, I think, in my opinion. He, he wrote the speech himself. It right. is. Okay. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did you think of the speech? Um, I didn't listen to all of it, but um, I thought it was I thought it was a, the, the, the correct tone, I think. It was um, respectful, but also frank, I thought. Yeah. Because, of course, Varadkar has a duty to represent all Everyone. Irish citizens. And I think people... Yeah. I think Irish citizens generally responded well to it. Yes, uh, like he was, he was very much lauded for it. Mm. Um, and what about us? Mm -hmm. Like, let's just go around one by one and kind of give our assessment of how we think this went. Mm -hmm. Did Francis pull it off or not? What do you think, Tim? Listen, I think Francis pulled it off for the remaining practicing Catholics in Ireland. A byproduct um, that he didn't foresee coming was, I think, he sealed the coffin on the death 
of Catholicism as a mainstream uh, institution in Ireland. Like, I mean, it sounds dramatic. It comes from a, a tweet, a dramatic tweet I sent out that, the, <laughs> that the, the green of those fields in that coverage, the acres of empty green space, is the green of a New Ireland. Like that's empty. It, that represents something. Um, it's the soil of a country with 796 babies still still lying in it. And it's the soil of a country where those Magdalene laundries are still, you know, haunting us from every corner. Much like uh, the way the referendums in the last two referendums informed us all, all of a sudden that we were all on the same side, actually, and we didn't realize it. I think this has, ironically enough, informed us all that, yeah, no, this is over. Their day is, is officially done. What do you think, John? I was, like, being there on the ground, um, it was hard to get... I, I didn't have a sense of the other protests were going at, going on at the same time. People were definitely happy to be there. I think um, there wasn't really... Apart from the applause when the Pope was asking for, for forgiveness, I felt like there wasn't really like an acknowledgement of all these other issues that are happening at the same time. Um, so a fail? I mean, I, can, I as, as maybe a neutral observer... It was somewhat muted or...? Yeah, maybe muted was, is the word for it. But know. can we consider this a success, what had happened last weekend? To me, it's a low point of Pope Francis's papacy. I mean, he is besieged on all sides. Now, you think he shouldn't have come at all? I, I don't... And I don't think that. I think it was totally a legitimate thing for him to have done, to have wanted to do. But it went really badly. And what, part of the reason why it went really badly was because of problems within the Catholic Church. So while he was in Ireland, Carlo Maria Vigano, who is an, a former Vatican ambassador, published a letter mm. in which he accused Pope Francis and his predecessor of knowing about ab- abuses by this cardinal, Cardinal McCarrick, who is the art... Was, um, the Archbishop of Washington that subsequently resigned. Um, and this was clearly politically timed to embarrass Pope Francis as he visited Ireland. As he took the plane away from Dublin, he had a conversation with journalists and all of the questions were about what did he know when. Mm. It was just another failure to put this whole issue to bed. Right. Um, this issue that has been bedeviling and weakening and damaging the Catholic Church for decades now. Francis left Ireland in a cloud of controversy and difficulty that's happening within the Catholic Church. There's actually talk of schisms at the moment, like there could possibly be a schism in the church. Oh, like, as if talk- things weren't interesting enough. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they're speaking about it as the biggest crisis okay. since the Reformation. Okay, and in the context of that crisis then, if you look at the international reporting on the visit, all of them focused in on uh, nobody showing up to the mass, all of them focused in on the protests. Is Ireland playing a part in this great turn of irony in the unravelling of the Catholic Church at an international level? We've had these two incredibly high-profile referendums, which were seen a lot around the world, according to international perspective, yeah. as lashes at the Catholic Church. And this is huge reverberating effects. I mean, Francis is in this massively difficult position. So, mm. like, people like Vigano, the guy who sent that letter uh, accusing him of cover-up of the, um, you know, of... of abuse and all that yeah also um the gay cabal that he that's what i was trying to get to so the there there's for many years been gossip and scandal about the so-called gay cabal in the vatican so (laughs) how do i get in on that (laughs) (laughs) so um (laughs) it's basically there's been leaked stuff about there being a coterie of of senior vatican people who are gay in the narrative the traditionalists all these things are tied together the financial scandals the child abuse and the gay stuff 
there is a kind of a counter-narrative that this whole abuse scandal is down to a tolerance of priests being gay. Right. So that the attack by Vigano needs to be seen in that context. He just timed it to set the tone, a tone of embattlement when Francis was in Ireland. But now, like, Francis coming to Ireland is, is, is the Catholic Church checking in on this massively, symbolically important place, which has been an absolute bastion of Catholicism, that adopted Catholicism as part of its national identity, res- resisted the Protestant power that was, you know, um, dominating it from next door, uh, you know, in the name of Catholicism, is hugely important. Mm. And it's interesting that in both cases, in 1979 and both now, the church was visiting visiting Ireland to kind of shore up the faithful. In, in 79 already, even though we talk about that huge turnout, hmm. there was this perception that the church was under threat in Ireland right. from modernization, even like, at that point. I suppose the difference would be in 1979, they were protecting their all-powerful all dominance, and yeah. now they're just trying to protect their very survival. But it worked. they won over a lot of young people then. They did. Yeah, a lot of, apparently a lot of couples um, stopped using contraception. After that, right. In fact, mm. we heard an anecdote yesterday. Yesterday, yes. we yeah. met mm-hmm. one of the so-called Pope's babies. Pope's children. The Pope's children. <laughs> so yeah, her, her parents, her mother, on advice of the Pope, because after the Pope's visit, was advised to stop using contraception. She stopped using contra- contraception, and our friend that we met was born in eighty-one. Right, and we've talked about we talked about this in our last episode. Yeah. That there was a huge. It was the first generation that. Um, uh, increased the country's population rather than decreased since the famine that generation Incredible. and this is the same generation we have to say that are out there at the Stanford Truth rallies today so yeah. that's you know it's, it's all, it all comes back to that it's the generation that grew up to reject the Catholic Church and there's a massive irony in that okay so I, that's definitely all we have time for today we've we've massively run over not much of a half pint Naomi more of a more of a full pint yeah, there full, full pint yeah yeah um, so yeah thank you so much for listening guys and don't forget. Uh, you can, if you like what you hear, there's more content available for Patreon subscribers at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. We're on Twitter at, at Passport Irish and we have a Facebook page too. So do be in touch with your comments. Uh, indeed. And if you feel very generous today, you can head on over to whatever uh, platform you use to listen to the podcast and give us a five star lovely review. That makes a huge difference That's to us. That's the only rule. It has to be a five star. <laughs> <laughs> but no, right. thank you so much. And do share it with your friends. All the best. Bye now. Slow on.